Hello and welcome back to our podcast on selective mutism and we're just going to kick it off with a round of tips for schools. Just to start us off with, it's very common that schools tend to be very focused on the child meeting their learning goals, which is very understandable, and they worry a lot about the risk of underachievement with children with selective mutism. But we know that that can add a lot of pressure to the child and tends to increase their anxiety, which makes sense because, you know, there's a lot of pressure for them to speak. But it's really important to remember that children with selective mutism tend to be very bright and observant. So they tend to stay on track academically in the early years, even without speaking. So it's really important not to put any pressure on the child and just let them go at their own pace. And a really good example Rosa Maria gave is, for example, say you're playing the alphabet game where you point to the child and they have to say the next letter of the alphabet and everybody participates. You can give the child with selective mutism the opportunity to join, but don't put any pressure on them and don't make them feel like they're failing if they don't contribute. Yes, don't point out they are not talking to others or make a big deal if they do talk. If they talk, act as if they have always been talking. Also, it's really important not to put the child in a situation where their fear is exaggerated. For example, don't force them to do a presentation in front of others and try and avoid to put them in the front row. It's really about nudging and not pushing the child out of their comfort zone. Also, really important is not to ask the child to do something that can make them feel different. So, for example, putting them in a reading group where it's expected for for everyone in the group to read aloud. Mm. And I think it's really important to work very closely with the clinician who's seeing the child. An example of that is the sliding in approach. And you can really just create it and adapt it according to the needs of the child. So an example of the sliding in approach is where you bring a parent in that the child is comfortable with and they chat in the home. You bring them into school. Uh, And initially, it's probably the case that the child won't be able to speak to them in the school environment. So they come in and they spend about 15 minutes just playing with the child and doing a fun activity until the child starts talking to them in school. Maybe they whisper or maybe they talk confidently. And when they start feeling comfortable speaking to the parent in the school, you start sliding in, for example, a teaching assistant or a teacher that the child tends to feel a bit more comfortable with. And they might initially enter the room and just do something else. They might get a glass of water or uh, pick up a book or whatever. And then eventually they might stick around a bit longer until they also join in the activities with the child. And this is where you can get really creative, right, Rosalia? Yes. Uh, I remember a case of a little girl in a school that uh, she went with a sliding in technique uh, with a parent and then started whispering. And then the the next step was to create a little group with the two kids that were very close to to this child for a reading. But of course, she was not reading at the beginning. And one day the teachers uh, always brought her dog uh, that came to the school and sat in the small group while the children were reading. And then the teacher told this girl, I said, uh, we are going to, to get more books, but why you don't read to the dog? Because the dog needs somebody to read to her. And then she left, and we heard that the child was whispering and reading the book to the dog, which was amazing. Oh. It's so emotional for everybody. I can imagine. Mm-hmm. And another really helpful tip is that 
adults visiting the class should be briefed beforehand um, so that they don't point out or comment on the child's lack of talking or ask them any direct questions or point out the fact that they don't speak in front of the child. And that also reminds me, actually, that even if the child does happen to say a word or kind of whisper something, it's quite important not to overreact to this. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes, yes. And it's important that you can still involve the child, Mm -hmm. but instead of open-ended questions, you can give options so they can nod or shake their head or even use objects to tap, etc. Allow them to choose the way they want to communicate, but feel free to encourage them to be creative. In order to help the child feel included, you can ask everyone to use their means of communication. Example, everyone using their hands to answer, clapping, foot tapping, everyone closes eyes and sings a song. And actually, it's quite important as well to interact with the child without asking them direct questions. And a really helpful way to do this is just by narrating or commenting. So, for example, instead of saying sort of, oh, which car is fastest? You can sort of say, oh, I wonder which of these cars is fastest. Or I'm seeing you're using red block. I'll use that too. Red is nice. So as you can see, there's no direct question here. It's just sort of a a, a free running commentary. Or you can even say things like, I wonder if cats are good at jumping. So statements that really don't require an answer, but that still provide an opportunity for the child to speak if they want to. And we also wanted to give some tips to young people or children who are listening to this podcast who struggle with selective mutism. Yes, I always tell the children that had selective mutism, you know, you will speak when you are ready. And you are in control of the situation. Don't worry and don't pay attention to people that push you to talk. They want to help the situation, but they don't know how sometimes they might push you without knowing. But you, when you feel that you are ready, you are going to talk. I'm very sure of that. As well as I tell them that it's okay to be scared. There is nothing wrong with you. When you are ready, things will fall into place. And your daughter, Rosa Maria, she also uh, wanted to give some tips to other children who are experiencing selective mutism. She wanted to say that what can be very helpful is to give anxiety a name and see it as separate from you. So, for example, she calls her anxiety the anxiety monster. And that really helps put some distance between her and the anxiety. And I think it's also important to give some tips for parents. You need to start creating a safe environment outside the home where there's just no pressure for the child to speak. A nice idea as well is at a time where your child's relaxed and happy, you can have a chat to them about it. Like, for example, you can say, I know you find it hard to talk at school, and that's okay. And for now, don't worry about talking. You can still have fun, you can still play with other kids and make friends. And when you're ready, you can practice using your voice and being brave. Don't ask them why they don't talk, because that sometimes sends the message that it's wrong, that they find that hard. But you can ask them how worried they feel on a scale of 1 to 10, for example. Yeah. And for instance, if you are at a restaurant, you can ask them close-ended questions rather than open-ended questions. You can try to be sometimes a little bit silly with your suggestions to see if they correct you. For instance, I I remember my daughter didn't like salads at all. I said, okay, then perhaps you would like some salad today 
then of course she was going to say chicken. But I gave her the opportunity to encourage her a little bit to talk. And oh, I said, okay, with your chicken, would you like salad? Chips. Then he said, chips. Uh, uh, these sort of things that are natural, but without pushing or pressure or making the child feel uncomfortable. Absolutely. And, and often what happens with selective mutism is that parents and siblings or the various advocates around the child may kind of talk on their behalf because they'll, they'll really feel the pain of the child not being able to talk. And so they step in and, and kind of want to rescue the child. Uh, and so parents may, may worry that they're kind of keeping this problem going by, by talking for their child. And as tempting as it is, then it's really important to still give them the opportunity to, to respond and also the time to do that. But obviously don't wait so long that they become really distressed. So it's really about just nudging, not pushing. Um, and of course, you are their advocate if, if they need you. And, and also remember not to make decisions for them, but try out kind of different methods of communication so that they can still make their decisions. So these methods, for example, might include scaffolding or narrowing it down to options. So, for example, you might start off by saying, would you like some ice cream? And then they might say yes or, or nod. And then that's where you might narrow it down and therefore say, oh, would you like chocolate or, or vanilla? And then when they choose one of them, it might be by whispering or, or nodding. Then you can really confidently, as if they had confidently told you, say, yes, all right, then chocolate it is. Uh, and don't talk about the child in front of, of them to other people. So, for example, don't comment on how they talk. Ask other families and friends not to ask the child direct questions or comment on whether they can speak. And if their confidence is quite low, make sure to praise them for any non-verbal achievements or abilities that you see. So, for example, doing well at sports or being brave at the park or playing an instrument. Another little thing you can do is um, you can chat to them when they're, they're safe at home and ask them, in school, if they do decide to talk, who would they like to talk to? There might be a friend they're particularly close with or a teacher. And then you can maybe ask for them to sit next to that friend, uh, encourage them to build those strong relationships so that they're more comfortable to talk when they're ready. And Rosa Maria, what about um, some tips for other clinicians working with children with selective nudism? I think it's important you can't rush it. Mm. It's slow, it's fast. <laughs> Go with the pace of the child. If they want to go fast, go fast. If they need to go slowly, you have to go slowly. Treat them like they are your priority. Don't prioritize their difficulty or need to be talking. Appreciate their personality. Make them feel like a priority. And also what can be really helpful is uh, kind of making a list of strategies and exercises and, and games that are not verbal so that you can start building a good relationship with the child. So, Rosemaria, you've mentioned to us having played with your own children, noughts and crosses, hangman, head, shoulders, knees and toes, where you can sort of point to the, the body part without necessarily yes. saying it. And again, kind of making those purposeful mistakes where the child can, if they feel comfortable, correct. Yes. And empower the child, because after all, selective mutism is associated with self-esteem. And finally, remember that when the child is ready, they will be able to talk. Okay, thank you so much, Shereem. That's all the tips that we had for today. The handbook that we've been using is called the Selective Mutism Resource Manual by Maggie Johnson and Alison Wingens. And if you live in Barnet or your child goes to school in Barnet and you want to refer, please do find us online at Barnet Integrated Clinical Services where you can complete a referral. Thanks everybody for listening. Goodbye.